Welcome back to The Conversation Weekly. We're just about to wrap up our short August break, so we've got one last extended interview for you all before we get back. This story from earlier this year is about neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change its structure. Neuroplasticity is what allows the brains of young animals to change more easily than the brains of old ones. This is true for people too, and it's why kids can learn languages, instruments, everything so much easier than us adults. There's still a lot researchers don't know about this critical function of the brain, but we do know that many diseases are caused by too little or too much neuroplasticity. So being able to turn it up or down could have some really important medical benefits. And yes, if we could control neuroplasticity, we might be able to unlock some of that super-powered learning that comes with a malleable brain. Sarah Ackerman and her colleagues study fruit flies, specifically the mechanisms that turn neuroplasticity on and off in their little fruit fly brains. Yes, fruit flies are a bit different than you and me, but this kind of foundational research is science in its purest form, asking important questions and starting at the bottom to find the answer. My name is Sarah Ackerman, and I am a postdoctoral fellow in the Doe Lab at the University of Oregon. I'm really broadly interested in how the body makes and maintains a functioning brain. And specifically, what I have been focusing on in my research, really for the last uh, 10 years since I was a graduate student, is on this special group of cells called glia. So the human brain is made up of billions of neurons that talk to one another. And this communication is what allows us to do what we need to do. But 50% of the human brain is actually not made of neurons, but made up of these other cell types called glia. And the fact that there are so many of them means that they must be doing something important, but they've been largely ignored by the neuroscience community for a long time because we just didn't know what they did. So I'm interested in how these glial cells are instructing the neurons to form these connections um, that allow us, for example, to move through our environment. Okay, so we've got the brain 50% neurons, 50% glia. What are they doing? We know that there are lots of different types of glial cells. They're present both in the, the brain, the spinal cord, out on our nerves, in our limbs. And in general, we can say that they are necessary for the long-term health of neurons. And they've become really uh, a focus of neuroscience research because there's a lot of evidence that in different neurological disorders or neurodegenerative disorders that these glia are becoming sick and dying. So I think one of the most studied cases of this is in multiple sclerosis, where you get loss of the glial cells that wrap around neurons in the brain. And when you lose those glia, the neurons die, and then you end up with multiple sclerosis. And so we know there's a, there's a lot of variety. They do a lot of things, but if we were to sum it up into one word, they're there to allow neurons to survive for a long time. Because if you think about it, the neurons that are present in our adult brains 
they're the same neurons that were born when you were in the womb. And so they have to make it a long time. And these glia are what are there to, to help that happen. The importance of the cells that keep neurons alive, that has got to be huge. But your research was looking at something a little more specific than just the like maintenance, so to speak. Uh, what was it that you were looking at? So I was looking at this specific type of glia. So as we talked about, they, they come in a lot of different varieties. And it's this one type of glia called an astrocyte. And they're called astrocytes because they have this really beautiful star-shaped structure in the brain. So if you, if you stain to look at them, you see these little stars kind of all throughout the nervous system. And these are these astrocytes. And specifically, what I was looking at is the role of these astrocytes in neuroplasticity. Okay, so neuroplasticity is this big word, but all it really means is the ability of neurons to change their shape and to change their signaling strength in response to, for example, experiences. And so what I was studying is how these glial cells are shaping or instructing the level of plasticity that occurs in the brain at different periods. Okay, so we've got neuroplasticity allows basically neurons to change. Why is that important? What does that mean for me? Neuroplasticity allows for you to learn. You have probably heard the phrase practice makes perfect. So when we practice a certain task, for example, playing a, a piano or learning a new sport, this engages or turns on plasticity in the brain. And this allows those neurons to start changing and strengthening their connections so that you become a better player over time. And so plasticity is really important for us to form and maintain those connections in the brain that enable us to do different tasks. Your work was looking at how astrocytes, those star-shaped cells, can turn off plasticity. So what do you mean turn that off? It sounds like I'd always want my plasticity on full crank 100%, right? Yeah, that's a great question. So we know that neuroplasticity is really, really strong in a child's mm. brain. So for example, I'm sure uh, many of your listeners like me have tried to learn a new language at some point in their adult life sure. and found it to be like just impossible where children can pick up multiple languages really quickly. So what is the deal with that? Well, in childhood, the brain is super plastic or malleable and 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 that allows kids to learn new tasks and skills really quickly, but then at some point in our maturing brain, this plasticity starts to wane. And so the question is why? Why would we not want to be like super plastic all the time? Well, there's some evidence that prolonged plasticity beyond childhood is linked or can contribute to neurological conditions where you see kind of the activity of neurons is not controlled well in the brain. So think of epilepsy or schizophrenia. And so there's a certain point in our life where we want these neural connections to be solid. We want there to be a little bit of flexibility for, for learning and memory, but not so much dramatic plasticity that the connections 
are constantly rearranging. Okay, so we've got this need to shut down plasticity or control it or limit it in some way. Why fruit flies? Fruit flies are really an excellent model for neuroplasticity because while they are simple, they have many of the same cell types, including astrocytes and and neurons, and they have many of the same genes that are present in humans. Um, And in fact, there have been six Nobel Prizes awarded for research in flies that changed our understanding of how biology works in humans. And so I wanted to use the fruit fly in order to identify different ways that the brain restricts plasticity to these earlier developmental stages or these young brains. And fly is a great model for that because we have the ability to change the activity of neurons in other words, to induce plasticity at different stages and see what happens under different manipulations. And so what I found is that the neurons in the fruit fly brain are really plastic early in life, as as we know for humans as well. And then this plasticity wanes. But if I got rid of these astrocytes, these glial cells, these neurons maintain their plasticity much later in development. How did you even know to guess that it was astrocytes? What was kind of the clue that led me to test this is that if I just looked at the behavior of these astrocytes or their location in the nervous system, there was a very dramatic change over time. So when these neurons are in that really plastic state, the astrocytes are not yet touching the neurons. Like like physically touching? Physically touching, yeah. So then when the neurons became stable, astrocytes had extended themselves and had coated themselves all over the neurons. And so this close contact between the, the astrocyte and the neuron at that switch from plastic to stable was a really big tip that maybe they're, you know, sending something to the neuron or secreting something, somehow telling the neuron that you shouldn't be plastic anymore. Well, so, I mean, that's correlation does not imply causation, but that seems pretty strong. So how did you look at causation? So I did a few different types of experiments. The first thing was super easy, but is kind of a sledgehammer approach which is just to get rid or kill all of the astrocytes. And when I killed the astrocytes, then the neurons maintained this plasticity. But of course, that's, you know, as we said, a sledgehammer approach, because these astrocytes are important for lots of things. So we don't just want to kill them. That's not going to be really a valuable therapy. So what I followed up with is I used tools that would allow me to remove genes one by one in the astrocytes and then looked for that high level of plasticity that I saw when I killed them. And so in that way, I was able to find individual genes that are needed in the astrocytes to shut off plasticity. How many options did you try before you found the two genes that actually were controlling plasticity? I tried uh, 60 
different genes. Um, <laughs> Six so, zero. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it took a good eight months or so of, of screening through these different candidates, but there are thousands and thousands of genes. So I, w- I was thankfully able to come down to a, to me, a relatively small pool by looking at what genes are normally expressed in astrocytes. Cause if there's a gene that isn't usually on in astrocytes, taking it away isn't going to make any difference. Um, and those that we know astrocytes use for some other process in, in the brain. And so I had kind of a, a short list of genes that I was tackling. This stuff could potentially have relevance to humans and people and, you know, potentially other animals too. But what are some of those potential applications? There are lots. They're all kind of a ways down the road, but in humans, like spinal cord injuries or uh, neck injuries, for example, there's there's very limited recovery for these patients because of failure to re-engage in the mature nervous system. So my goal is to use the fly to identify common and core principles that regulate plasticity so that we might take advantage of these pathways or try to find therapies or drugs that alter or work through these pathways to either increase or dial up or plasticity or dial down plasticity whenever it's needed. Or even, you know, age-related memory loss that doesn't shoot all the way to, to dementia. All of these conditions are somehow influenced by plasticity mechanisms just going awry, whether too much or too little or at the wrong time. And so if we can really understand the basic mechanisms that are shaping plasticity, this could become a way that we could really impact a lot of lives. Awesome. Uh, Well, Sarah, thank to you and to your undergrad for uh, making a difference. Great. Thank you. That again was Sarah Ackerman at the University of Oregon. To read the story she wrote for The Conversation on her research, just click the link in the show notes. Conversation Weekly will be back with a new episode next week, the 26th of August. In the meantime, get in touch on Twitter at TC underscore audio on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marwani and Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. The music is by the wonderful Nita Sarl. I'm Dan Reno. It's been a nice vacation, and we'll see you all next week.